chapter and that book tonight. And Father, we do thank you that you set us free. You put a song in our hearts. You give us purpose, meaning, and beyond that, direction to live a meaningful life, one that is filled with hope, joy for today, and as the song says, bright hope for tomorrow. Lord, rekindle that tonight as we, your people, uncover familiar truths. Help us to learn what it is to walk in a way that you'd look at our lives and say, I'm well pleased as sons and daughters. Lord, whatever it is in our lives that we're dealing with, you know intimately. In fact, you know better than we do where we're at what we're getting into, and how to get out of it. So, Lord, we relax in your presence. We trust that you're here not only to speak words to us and give principles to us, give direction, but to lift our burdened hearts. To do a supernatural work in our midst. To connect us with new members of the body of Christ so that we can minister to each other. Build us up, Lord, in the most holy faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't it amazing that we survived childhood? If you think about all the things that you did and you still are alive, the stub toes, the wrecked bikes, the wrestling matches. I mean, I can think back to being thrown through glass doors. I had three older brothers. I can remember have, having bricks thrown at me by my brother Bob. Large stones, not just dirt clods. I mean, big honking bricks. I remember the day I found a switchblade out in the road and I stabbed him in the arm with it and he stabbed me with the pencil. My poor mom. It's amazing that she survived our childhood. <laughs> Since we were kids, our parents gave us warning messages like, be careful, look both ways before you cross the street. All of those warnings and directions on how to step into life carefully, cautiously, effectively. I remember as a boy going to the dairy. It was a field day for our school class, and I was a little bit late, so I had to walk across the field to meet my class. They were already at the dairy. So going across the pasture, I had to walk very carefully. Each step was monitored because if you made one false step, you'd know about it later on. Well, you'd know about it at that moment as well. And uh, I made it over there, made it back after uh, school. I looked at the bottom of my shoes. I had taken many false steps that day. Now, we're looking at that in these chapters. The first couple of chapters, just to refresh your memory and to get it locked in your memory, is who you are in Christ Jesus. That's the oft-repeated phrase in this book. You're not just you anymore. You have a new address. You're in Christ. You belong to him. All that he has, all that he is, you're wrapped up in that new identity. 
So the first couple of chapters, Paul writes the book of Ephesians to this church at Ephesus, telling them who they are and what they have. Then in chapter 4 and 5, he tells them, so what? Now that you know who you are and what you have, this is what you're to do now. This is how you're to walk. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us we're to have a worthy walk. Walk worthy. Let your walk weigh as much as your profession. What you do should correspond to what you say. That's a worthy walk. Then in chapter 4, around verse 17, Paul tells us to walk differently from the rest of the world. Don't walk as other Gentiles walk. You're to walk markedly different. Your pace is to look different from that of the world. Now in chapter 5, in the verses we cover tonight, Paul will tell us, Three more ways to walk. Walk in love, he will tell us. Walk in light, he will also tell us. And walk in wisdom, he will tell us. Or walk circumspectly, as the King Jimmy puts it. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So again, we follow this whole thing on how to walk. And so uh, we begin in um, verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication in all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolishness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So can you pick up the division here? The first seven verses, walk in love, now walk in light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness righteousness, and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now notice in the next few verses, the next seven, it's a walk in wisdom. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's a mouthful. That's what we do based on what we know. And let me just underscore again, because here we are all about Bible study, and I hope that once we leave, we'll take the Bible study and move it down from here, and we always say move it from the head to the heart. I don't want you to do that. I want you to move it to here. I want you to wrap the Bible in shoe leather, so to speak. It's about doing what we know. You see, chapters 1 through 3, he puts a lot of knowledge in our head. This is who you are. This is what you have. We go, ooh, cool, great, underline, memorize. But now comes the graduation. Whereas Christians, it's not about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. It's about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit so transforming my life that the truth of God is evident. Back in the 1600s, a French philosopher by the name of René Descartes had that famous saying, it made him famous, cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And every uh, philosophy student since then, every time that's studied in philosophy class in college, they hear that, I think, therefore I am, and they go, ooh, wow, that's so deep, it's so profound, really? All it means is the processes that go on in my brain validate that I'm alive. I think, therefore I am. Big deal. What Paul would say is, I know, therefore I do. That's what the walk is all about. So it's more than just coming up with outlines and memorizing the breakup of the book. These are the things that Paul says we graduate into. Now, the first several verses we covered, and we'll pick them apart, go as far as we can tonight, is walk in love, he says. Walk in love. Be imitators of God. Be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Would you agree that probably no other subject in history has had more songs written about it, more poems devoted to it than the subject of love? Love songs for girlfriends, love songs for boyfriends, love songs for spouses, love songs for God. However, I believe that our culture is grossly confused when it comes to love. We confuse even the application of the term. You probably know that in Greek there's four words for love. In English there's one word, love. And so we'll say, I love my wife. I love motorcycles. I love Marie Callender's. I love God. All legitimate statements. But I hope you don't love God the same way you love Marie Callender's. That would be to elevate Marie to a position she shouldn't have and to denigrate God. And so we get confused when it comes to love, and the world will say, We're in love. I'm in love with you. And that's a legitimate statement. However, so often what people mean is not I love you, but I lust you. It's I love me and I want you. You see, that's not real love. That's self-centeredness. And so what Paul does is he 
He puts God as the subject. He's the example. Be imitators. Be followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Now, we know that Paul wrote this letter to, it says at the top of your Bible, Ephesians. But do you know who the bishop of Ephesus became after Paul left? The Apostle John. And the Apostle John, when he was very, very old, would be carried by some of the church members and brought into the assembly on a cot. So you can imagine they were so blessed to have this venerable apostle, this real-time, real-life follower of Jesus. He saw Jesus in the flesh, and he came to their church. So they'd lift him in, and they'd carry him to the front. And he'd always have a message for the congregation. And it was the same message every time they brought him in. He'd say in a very soft voice, little children love one another. And they loved that, but it got old. It's like the same tape over and over again, month after month. Little children love one another. So one of the elders of that church asked him, John, sir, why do you always say that every time you open your mouth? He said, because it is our Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. If only this is done, it is enough. Now, walk in love, he says. That's the subject of this first part. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. What does that mean, walk in love? How, how does a person walk in love? I'm going to give you three ways. Number one. By imitating your father. Number two, by emulating your savior. And number three, by influencing your brother. That's how you walk in love. That's basically his message here. Imitating your father, emulating your savior, influencing your brother. Look at verse one and two. Therefore, be followers of God as dear children. No greater example of love than God. Be an imitator of God as dear children, like father, like son. It's family business to love. One of my favorite hymns, and I'm not a guy who knows a lot of them, but I've come to really appreciate the depth of them over time, is a hymn by F.M. Lehman called The Love of God. The love of God, he writes, is greater far than ink or pen can ever tell. It stretches to the farthest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. In other words, God's love is so immeasurable, you could write about it and sing about it and chant about it and sing about it. We already said that forever and you wouldn't exhaust it. In fact, we already read in Ephesians, Paul says God's going to take all of eternity. It's going to take all of eternity for him to unveil and show his love to you. So. We're children of the one who initiated great love. How do you walk in love? You imitate your father. Be followers of God as dear children. There's an old saying that flattery 
or that um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. That may or may not be true, but certainly it would be a great compliment to God, would it not? For you to pray uh, faced with an unlovely character in your life, Lord, I don't like that person, but Lord, I'm going to love that person because I want to be just like you. I'm going to use you as my example. I'm going to imitate you. By the way, the word follower here is mimetes in Greek. Mimickers. You know how children will follow their dad or mom and watch what they do and do exactly the same thing and irritate us when they're very young? That's the idea. I'm going to watch how God does it, and I'm going to mimic him. So, Lord, I'm going to help me to love that person because it would be something you would do. Years and years ago, it was New York City. It was during the Great Depression years. And there was a little boy standing outside a department store window. And he was shivering cold. It was the wintertime. He was looking into the department store and just nose pressed up against the window. A woman came by and looked at the odd sight of this poor little boy shivering in front of a department store window. And she said, what are you doing? He says, I'm praying that God would give me a pair of shoes. Well, you can guess what she did. She took the boy inside, asked the clerk if she could take him to the back, asked for a basin and a towel, and she took off her nice gloves, and she bent down, and she washed the boy's feet, and she ordered six pairs of socks, warm socks, wool socks, and two pairs of shoes, and she gave it to him. And she was about to walk out of the store, and she felt a tug on her coat. It was the little boy with tears in his eyes, looked up at her and said, Miss... Are you God's wife? (laughs) Isn't that precious? Why would she say that? Why would he say that? Because she reminded him of God. You must be related to God somehow. Because you just did something I know God would do. Are you God's wife? Wouldn't it be great if somebody looked at you and said, Excuse me, are you God's kid? You must be related to him. Be followers of God as dear children. So, by imitating God. Second, by emulating our Savior. Verse 2, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We go from imitating to emulating. Why? Because When we say, love like God would love, it's still too abstract. That's why. God is love. Still too abstract. Flesh it out a little bit. So Paul does. He says, okay, you want to know how to do it? Look at Jesus. He was here as a man, as a human. He did it. Kids learn to draw first by tracing, usually. They're given paper that's not uh, too opaque, and they place it over the original image, and they take their pencil or pen and they trace the image. And so what Paul does is he takes the concept of God's love and follow him and do what he does down to Jesus and said, okay, here, do that. Love like Jesus loved. Now, how did Jesus love? Well, Jesus' love was unconditional love. He loved unconditionally. He loved sacrificially. And he loved with complete forgiveness. That's how he loved. 
Um, Josh McDowell wrote a book, and he said something that struck me. He wrote toward the beginning of it. He said, every human being has two basic fears. Fear number one, that they'll never be loved for who they really are. If people find out who they really are, they won't be loved. That's one of the biggest fears of every person. Second fear is they'll never be able to give authentic, unconditional love. And so we replace it with other things. We call it love, but it's really not. We'll give anything to get intimacy. That's what we want. And so love like Christ, he loved unconditionally and sacrificially. Walk in love as Christ loved us and has given himself for a sacrifice or a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. Back in the 1960s, the Beatles wrote a song, um, When I'm 64, when I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Well, how'd you answer that? If, if you love like Christ loved, you'd say, of course I will. You could get wrinkles all over. You could be totally bald and you could be an invalid and I will love you forever. That's Christ's love. That's loving, un, that's loving with no strings attached, unconditionally. That's the idea of loving like Christ loved. Did, did, does Jesus love us because we deserve it? Did, did Jesus look through the earth and stop when he saw us and he thought, oh, oh my, I can't pass you up. You are such a find. And there's a lot of people in your neighborhood, but they're not like you. <laughs> you know better. No way. He knows the truth about us, but he loves us the way we are. In fact, it says, while we were still sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I wonder if that's what Shakespeare had in mind when he wrote, Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, nor bends with the remover to remove. No, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks at tempests and is never shaken. I don't think any human being has ever loved quite like that, quite that authentically as Jesus Christ has loved. By the way, can I just say this? To love like Christ, to love like God, doesn't mean you like everyone. Loving is not liking. Liking is emotional. Love is a choice. I don't think it's possible to like everyone. I don't think you're supposed to because I don't think it's possible. I don't like everyone that I meet. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think those things in my heart that you think when you meet certain people that you're just not too stoked on. And you go, oh, hi, how are you? It's so lovely to meet you. And you're thinking, am I done? You know, we all do that, right? I just am honest. You don't like everyone, but you're called to love everyone. That's not tied to an emotion. That's tied to a choice based upon the emulation of Christ. So love is a choice to love unconditionally, and then, as it says here, I think sacrificially. You know, uh, <laughs> you want to separate um, the big leagues from the minor leagues when it comes to love? It's sacrifice. How much are you willing to sacrifice for another person? There's a little girl, seven years old. She wrote a letter to Dr. Michael DeBakey in Houston, Texas. He's the big heart surgeon that 
that helped develop the artificial heart, the plastic heart, um, and, and more recently. And uh, she wrote an interesting question, the seven-year-old from Pittsburgh. Dear Dr. DeBakey, does a plastic heart have love in it? It's a good question. You know how kids ask questions and parents go, I don't know, ask the pastor. This doctor wrote a clever answer back. He said, oh, dear, a plastic heart has lots of love in it. Because a plastic heart is made by lots of people who love lots of other people and want them not to die but to get better. In fact, a plastic heart has so much love in it that these people will work all day long and sometimes all night long to make that plastic heart. So, my dear one, he writes, you might say that as much love as a hundred real hearts have, that's how much one plastic heart has. Good answer. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So the love of Christ emulating that is to love without strings attached and to love sacrificially, unconditionally and sacrificially. Now let's go on to uh, uh, the next verse. Boy, we're really making time, aren't we? But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Imitate your father, emulate your savior, influence your brother. The next few verses, Paul gives you sort of his dirty laundry list of things that aren't fitting for saints. These are uh, sins of passion and sins of the mouth that if you practice them, it shows that you're selfish. You're not walking in love. For instance, he says, fornication, the Greek word porneia, which is any kind of illicit sexual activity at all. It's, it's devoted toward what I get out of it, not what I can give you or serve you with it. I already mentioned lust isn't love. A young man dating a girl says, if you really love me, you'll sleep with me. He's a liar. And ladies, you ought to punch him if he says that. Because he doesn't love you. He loves himself and he wants you. And he has mistaken the concept of love. It's all about self-gratification, instant gratification. Uncleanness is uh, the thought life is included in that. Covetousness, if you want something that much that you'll do anything to get it, uh, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, now the sins of the mouth, uh, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. See, all of these practices restrict the flow of love. If God the Father is the originator of love, and he is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, if Jesus Christ is uh, the chief sacrifice in terms of love, then the one bottleneck is selfishness, and these are all things that speak to that. For this you know, that no fornicator, heavy verse, unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater, a covetous person is basically an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do you find it a little bit interesting that Paul quickly 
holds up the sins of the tongue as equal as sins of passion. He goes right from these debased uh, sins like fornication, uncleanness, to the sins of the mouth, sins of the tongue. Remember, as a kid, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, stick out your tongue. You go, why? Because the doctor can tell a lot about what's inside of you by your tongue. And you can tell a lot about what's inside of a person by what they say. From the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. You want to find out what's inside of his heart? Listen to him speak. If every other word is unwholesome and ungrateful and unsound, that's his heart. If every other word is filled with goodness and love and graciousness, praise, truth, that's inside his heart. Therefore, verse 7, do not be partakers with them. They will sap that walk in love if you live, if you walk, if you're perpetually surrounded by them. So that's a walk in love. Let's look now at the walk in light. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, let me just give you a little bit of uh, what I think the Bible means when it speaks of light. It's, it's something mentioned throughout the scripture. Light in the Bible physically speaks of the glory of God. It physically speaks of the glory of God. Whenever God shows up in the Bible, it's often accompanied by light. For instance, in creation, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was covered with darkness, basically, uh, without form and void. And darkness covered the face of the deep. And the spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. And God said, here's the first words of the creator. The first word God ever said that it's recorded. Let there be light. So when God shows up, there's this light. It speaks physically of his glory. When Abraham was making a covenant with God in the book of Genesis, a burning lamp passed through these divided pieces of carcasses, which is an ancient way of making a covenant. But the idea of this bright, shining lamp, this light, it spoke of the glory of God physically. In the wilderness, when God was directing the children of Israel through the desert, there was the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. So they saw that light. It spoke of God's glory physically. So physically, light speaks of God's glory. Morally, in the Bible, light speaks of God's holiness. He's pure. He is unique. He is, uh, well, Paul describes God's character to Timothy. That God, who alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light, speaks of his purity his singularness, his holiness. Then in the Bible, light speaks intellectually of God's knowledge, God's all-knowing, he's omniscient. You know, years ago, there was an era called the Dark Ages, followed by the Age of Enlightenment. You know, we said that when people don't know something, they're in darkness. But now when we educate them, they're enlightened. Did you know that every single age of man is the Dark Ages? We're living in the dark ages. Man apart from God is darkness. You don't come into the light till you come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. 
You can have 45 PhDs and be in utter darkness. You can know lots of stuff and be in complete darkness spiritually. So for us to walk in the light is, first of all, means we live in the light of God's glory. And I think what that means here is that we want to please the Lord. We live to please the Lord. Amos said, how can two walk together except they be agreed? How can you walk with God unless you agree with his character and his nature? Right? So here's my premise. Find out what God likes and do what God likes and you'll be walking in the light. So how do I know what God likes? Well, David said, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You want to walk in light, you find out what God's general principles are as written in the word. That means you and I got to spend a lot of time in the word, like every day, a portion of it, read it, digest it, apply it. And the more we do that, the more we'll be doing what God wants us to do. We'll be walking because we agree and you'll be walking in the light of his glory. Then I think it means to live in the light of God's holiness. He said, be holy for I am holy. Then I think it means to live in the light of God's knowledge. God sees everything we do, every thought you thought today. God saw the video you saw last night. God saw the look I gave the driver when I was on my way here today. God knew what I was thinking when that driver did that. (laughs) So for me to live in that light caused me at that moment to just say, Lord, forgive me. For what I was just thinking, I wanted to follow this person home. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord. Walk in the light. Proving, here's my point in verse 10, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. It was Will Rogers who said, live in such a way that you're never afraid to sell your parrot to the town gossip. (laughs) Isn't that a great visual? I'm going to sell my parrot to the town gossip. Let that parrot tell anything I've ever done. That's walking in the light as he is in the light. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Lewis Perry Schaefer, the great theologian from Dallas Theological Seminary, once said, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Great thought to promote holiness. That's the idea that's in the background of these verses. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but I do want you to notice this, but expose them. Expose them. Have you ever thought about being the kind of bright, shining light that when you're around people who are in darkness that your presence convicts them? You go, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. You know what? They ought to feel a little bit uncomfortable if you're following Christ. You don't have to be obnoxious. You just have to be authentic. That's all. Think of Jesus. Before Jesus came on the scene, most of Israel, including the disciples, thought that scribes and Pharisees were as holy as you could get. They were the cream of the crop. They were the the studiers of the law. They were the keepers of the truth until Jesus came on the scene and shined the bright and shining light into their lives. They didn't look so pretty anymore, did they? 
I submit to you that Jesus turned on the light 500 watts in Matthew chapter 23. You don't have to turn there now, but the, the chapter is filled with indictments. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're full of dead men's bone. You're whitewashed sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but you have death on the inside. Wow. That's incarnate love speaking light and truth into their lives. And suddenly, they paled by comparison to the perfect one, Jesus Christ. His life exposed them. So have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather rather reprove them, or as it says here, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light for whatever makes manifest is light. When Robert Louis Stevenson was a little boy and he grew up in Scotland, he grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland. And it was in the days when there were no electric lights, there were gas lamps. And so every evening a lamp lighter had to go out and light the streets up. Take the glass out, Put the flame in, kindle, it would burn. And so one evening, while it was foggy and dark, little Robert Louis Stevenson watched as the lamplighter went from light to light and the streets grew brighter and brighter and brighter. And he went to his mama and he said, Mama, I seen a man punching holes in the darkness. <laughs> hey, God has called us, you and I, all of us, to punch holes in the darkness. So let your light shine among men that people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let it be said that because you're in Orange County that the light is turned on. That you are where you live and work that the light is turned You're punching holes in the darkness. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. Verse 14 closes up that second section of walking in light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. It is thought that verse 14 is part of an ancient Easter hymn that was sung as an invitation for unbelievers to come to know Christ. Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead. Now, verse 15 is that final section. We'll close with that. We have oh, plenty of time. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, the next seven verses is the walk in wisdom. And what Paul does is basically contrasts the way of the fool with the way of the wise. And these are the steps that the wise person takes. This is what a wise person, enlightened with the truth from the first few chapters, will live like. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Here's a question. Don't be a fool, but be wise. What's a fool? Now, if you ask a, a person today, uh, most people would say, well, a fool is somebody who doesn't know, you know, how to tie his shoes or doesn't really know how to practically live. You know, he's just not mature when making important life choices. But according to the Bible, foolishness and wisdom all is related to one's knowledge of God. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, what? Yeah, there is no God. Actually, there is, isn't in the original. It's the fool has said in his heart, no God. And by the way, there's a difference. It is a fool to say there is no God, but it's equally a fool to say 
Basically, I think a God exists, but I don't want him. That's what it means. Fool has said in his heart, no God. Let's say you're at a restaurant and the waitress keeps bringing coffee. You know how they keep filling it up? You take a sip and it's like they keep filling it up. So finally you go, no coffee. Now, it doesn't mean you're saying I deny that coffee exists on earth. It means I believe coffee exists. I don't want any more. I'm full. So the fool has said in his heart, no God, I don't want him. I don't want him invading my life. That's foolishness. It's the opposite of wisdom. As Christians, we're to be wise. Wisdom and knowledge are two different entities, folks. Wisdom is the correct application of knowledge. Orange County is one of the smartest areas of the world. Lots of educated people here. Wonderful place to be. But how many wise people are here? Now, knowledge. It's been said that you could take all of the knowledge of mankind accumulated from the beginning of recorded history until the year 1845 and represent it by one inch. So imagine, one inch on our scale represents everything known from the beginning of recorded history to the year 1845. If that were true, then everything man has learned from 1845 to 1945, 100 years, would be represented by three inches. Just 100 years, that much more, three times. And everything accumulated in knowledge from, 18, from 1945 to 1975 would be the height of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. Now, that's 1975. It's so big now because they say knowledge doubles every 18 months. It's an exponential growth we're having available to us in terms of knowledge. But are we growing in accompanying wisdom? No. We have so much knowledge, we don't know what to do with the facts and the application of that knowledge. So it's incumbent upon the believer who knows who he is and what he has, knows who she is and what she has, to walk in wisdom, circumspectly. Now, this is what it means. Circumspect is an English word that we derive from two Latin words. And the two Latin words combined give us the English derivative, circumspectly. Literally, it means to look around. You get the picture? You're going to walk very carefully. You're looking around at every step that you're making because one false step, you could, you'd be toast. In 1970, a 65-year-old man, at that time he was 65 years old, his name was Carl Walensa, a tightrope walker, decided to walk across the Tallulah Gorge in Georgia. The Tallulah Gorge is a height of 750 feet, so he suspended a wire, um, 821 feet from side to side, suspended 750 feet off the ground, and he took 616 carefully chosen steps. That's what it means to walk looking around, circumspectly. Walk very carefully in this world in which you live in. Walk very cautiously. Gauge every step you take. Why? It says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So I would say to walk in wisdom means 
to take steps of opportunity. Steps of opportunity. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. I'm not going to ask your age. I promise. But if you're 35 years of age, you have 500 days left. Now you say, no, wait a minute, Skip. You, you need to go back to school and get your math straight. No. If you are 35 years old, you live to be the average three score and ten, and you take away all of the years you'll spend eating, sleeping, drinking, uh, brushing your teeth, tying your shoes, getting dressed, odd jobs, uh, any other hygienic things, time stealers, etc. You take all of that away, all of the work, you have about 500 days left that are your own to do with whatever you want to. Okay, you think about time that way, you go, I don't have much time left because I'm way over 35, some of you might say. Okay, my point isn't counting time, but making time count. That's the idea. Make your time count. Redeem the days or the time because the days are evil. Take steps of opportunity. When those days are over, when you die, and I know a lot of Christians, I can't wait to go to heaven. All the stuff, the pain, the misery is going to be over. Stop saying that. When you die, you'll never be able to pass out another tract. When you die, you'll never be able to tell another person about Jesus or say the sinner's prayer with another person or get persecuted by another person. All of those opportunities are gone. Seize the day. Seize the day. Walking in wisdom means that you take steps of opportunity. And that's what that verse is all about. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Verse 17, take steps of purpose. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be unwise. Here's your homework. Find out what God's will is for your life. That's always the big question, isn't it? What does God want me to do? Well, these are taking steps of purpose. And I'll tell you something. God has a general will, and God has specific will for your lives. And your template may be different than my template. But the way you find out in particular what God's will is for your life is to find out, first of all, his general rule, his general will for your life. And that's where the Bible comes in. The Bible is knowing God's will 101. That's where it starts. You know, you can pray all day long. God, show me your will. Show me your will. If you're not obeying what it's already revealed, why should he show you more? So you want to know what he wants you to do? Find out what he wants you to do. That's a purpose for your life. In verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You want to walk in wisdom? Take steps of power. Steps of opportunity, steps of purpose, take steps of power. Don't be drunk with wine, filled with the Spirit. This is an interesting verse because every time it's quoted, a lot of people like to bring up the don't be drunk with wine thing, but be filled with the Spirit, and they draw a correlation. So why would Paul mention being filled with the Spirit and it's the opposite of don't be drunk with wine? That's because when you're filled with the Spirit, you act like a loony. And I mean, they come up with all sorts of wild ideas that it's somehow equivalent to being drunk in the Spirit. It's nonsense. The whole purpose that Paul brought up, don't be drunk with wine, is because when somebody's drunk, we say he's under the 
Influence. When somebody's filled with the Spirit, they're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They're controlled by the Spirit. That's all it means. How do you know you're filled with the Spirit? Just bump into you. If you bump into a glass of water, what comes out? Water. If you bump into you, what comes out? Depends what's inside. So it's fun to bump into people. Find out what's in them. That's how you'll find out if they're, what they're filled with. <laughs> to be filled with the Spirit, look at it this way. Get this visual and go home with it. This is what I believe it means. Think of a glove. A glove has a purpose. It's meant to do work. It's meant to have a use. A glove is powerless, and a glove is useless until it's filled with a hand. The hand filling the glove, controlling the glove, now makes the glove have purpose and use. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is that your life is now controlled, occupied, under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Take steps of power. And by the way, be filled with the Spirit is in the present continual. It's be continually being filled. Well, I prayed for that 20 years ago. Do it every day. Lord, fill me like that hand in the glove that my life might be controlled. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the final point of walking in wisdom. Take steps of fellowship. You can't do these things on your own. You can't do these things with a radio. You can't do these things with a television. I've had fellowship today with my television set. I turned on the Christian channel and I hugged my TV and we prayed together. You can't do that. You need people in the body of Christ to make it happen. So take steps of fellowship. By the way, I've discovered something about any activity, Christian or non-Christian. One of the secrets to maintaining an interest in an activity is to get people who are also interested in that activity. That's why there's clubs. There's boating clubs. There's motorcycle clubs. And they go on motorcycle runs. There's gun clubs. Guys get together and shoot things. It's like, I love guns. I love motorcycles. We do, don't we? Um, And whatever it might be. If you step out of the fellowship of that club after a while, you may lose interest in it. There have been times when I've lost interest in certain hobbies, but then I get around people who are like nuts over them. And I start liking it again. And so it's important that we maintain regular, often, contacts of fellowship that maintain that interest, that excitement. Steps of fellowship. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There was a man. He, uh, he lost his keys to his car. There he was. It was nighttime, and he was out on the street looking for his keys underneath the street light, looking everywhere for him. Finally, a friend of his saw him and came out of his house and decided to help him, and so he was out looking for him, and they didn't find it. And finally, his friend said, where exactly did you lose your keys? Do you know? And the guy said, yeah, I, I lost them in the garage. Okay, the garage. Why are we looking out here then? The guy said, the light's better here. <laughs> the light's better here. 
I don't know if some of you have lost your way. I don't know where it is you lost your way. You lost your purpose. You lost the step of your walk in love, the step of your walk in the light, your step of your walk in wisdom. Maybe a commitment was made and you're really examining your life after a night like tonight and you thought, you know, it's okay to go to church and hang out. It's, it's cool, but I'm not like into Jesus. I don't know. I don't know where you lost your way, but you're here. The light's better here. You can see clearly here in God's presence with his people in this kind of atmosphere. And I believe you're not here by accident. But God wants you to find your way. Actually, God, God's been looking for you. Maybe you've come tonight and you said, I'm searching for God. Newsflash. The Bible says nobody seeks after God. No, not one. Oh, but I'm a seeker. No, you're not. You're lost. But God is the seeker. He is seeking people to worship him. He's seeking for people to redeem. God's been looking for you for a long time. So, answer, the light's better here. You'll find what you're looking for, because what you really need is a relationship with him. Would you bow your head with me and we'll pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this night where we were able to take a good chunk of this chapter and look at what it means to be a true believer, walking, taking what we know and then doing something with it, walking in love and walking in light and walking in wisdom. And perhaps some have lost their way, and we pray, Lord, that they find truth as they come to know Jesus Christ, not as a religion, but as a radical life changer. Lord, you don't want to be confined to a church or a denomination or a movement or a brand. You're the living God, and you want to radically change lives. That's what you're all about. So shake us up, Lord, out of any complacency and cause us to put the truth that we know into shoe leather to walk. I pray, Father, for anyone who's lost their way, maybe made a commitment years ago to follow Christ but walked away, or maybe really never knew the Christ of the Bible, and they want to know peace, meaning. It's what we sing about. It's what Santos told us and sang about. It's what the whole Bible is written about. God reaching down with love for people. And so as we're praying, if you're in this room tonight and you want to know that peace, that love, that Jesus we're talking about, I want you right now to raise your hand up in the air. Raise it up so I can see it. And I'm going to pray for you as we close this service. God bless you and you toward the back on my left. Thank you. God bless you guys. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. God bless you. And right up here in the front. Right on. Anybody else? Well, Lord, right over here to my left. Lord, I pray for those who have, have done that. And I pray in Jesus' name that you change from the inside out. Make all things new. Bring great peace and purpose. Flood their lives with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something. I know it's over time, and we're going to do it right away, and then we're going to close up. If you raised your hand, i got to tell you something. When Jesus called people, he called them publicly, not to embarrass them, 
but to welcome them into his family. If you raised your hand as we sing this next last song, I'm going to ask you to get up from where you're standing, find the nearest aisle, stand up here, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ or to rededicate your life to Christ. So if you raise your hand, some in the front, uh, on the side, in the back, over here, in the front, you come right here and stand. Stand right up in the front facing me. Right on. Come on.